Stoker Festival in Dublin, Ireland, this is Fangs. On this, the penultimate episode of Fangs, the deep dive into pop culture inspired by Dracula continues. This episode, video games and music. But first, perhaps one of the most important mediums when it comes to Dracula and vampire inspiration and adaptation is television. Here to lead us through the white noise of Dracula on TV is Dr. Dara Downey. While the first half of the 20th century saw a range of successful theatre and film adaptations of Bram Stoker's novel Dracula, it was almost a century before the Transylvanian bloodsucker would find his way to the small screen. It was arguably Bela Lugosi's early interpretation of the aristocratic immortal that would spawn the first prominent TV vampire, that is, Grandpa from the Monsters. Had poison apples, poison bananas, poison pineapples, poison fruit salad, poison. Complete with widow's peak, a high black collar, a tuxedo and a medallion on a ribbon around his neck, the homage was by no means subtle. Grandpa, who seemed to be several hundred years old and who was explicitly linked in the programme to Stoker's Dracula, is the patriarch of a family of outsiders, marked both by their monstrosity and by their immigrant heritage. Grandpa Munster is, after all, from Eastern Europe. You know, Grandpa is very sensitive about his past. Few other depictions of Dracula have, I think, come so close to exploiting his potential as a symbol for the ostracism experienced by immigrant communities. Though here, it's of course always played for laughs. Well, I'm not just going to sit around here and deteriorate. Why not? I've been doing it for years. (laughs) The Count from Sesame Street, whose full name I've learned is Count Von Count, also echoes the image created by Lugosi, and again to comic effect. Do you know why they call me the Count? Arguably, the puppet Count's obsession with counting things can be linked back to Eastern European folktales about vampires, and specifically to one that also crops up in the X-Files' very funny episode, Bad Blood. Is there any sign of... Two small puncture wounds on the neck? That's not what I was going to ask. Too bad, we got him. Check it out. And what I'm talking about here is the idea that you can stop a vampire in his tracks by scattering seeds in front of him, which he'll then be compelled to stop and count, every single one of them, until the end. Both Sesame Street and The X-Files therefore give us vampires with a form of obsessive-compulsive disorder. They're at the mercy of their own irrational impulses. There's a particularly lovely episode where himself and his girlfriend settle in for the night to watch a Friends-type sitcom about vampires, so they're more or less watching themselves on TV. Oh, I do enjoy this show. Yes, that's because it's about people just like us. And I think as well what's essentially kind of the point of TV shows about Dracula and about vampires is the intimacy of the experience. While we go out to go to the cinema or the theatre, watching TV happens at home. And watching a TV show about Dracula is therefore the equivalent of inviting him in, which we all know is a very bad idea indeed. This, along with the gradual loosening of censorship rules, is potentially the reason why it wasn't until the late 1970s that a full-on made-for-TV version of Stoker's novel appeared, in the form of the BBC's two-part made-for-TV film. They're superstitious fools. They've been losing for 2,000 years. This supposedly, according to critics, remains one of the most faithful adaptations to date, but is also in a very 70s way extremely impressionistic and sort of trippy. You are nourishment to me. The BBC's version of Dracula may actually now look rather cheap and stagey as a result, but it's still profoundly creepy in places. Jonathan Harker's journey to Castle Dracula is particularly well done. There's lots of darkness and shaking carriages and uncertainty, and it's very effective. 
In many ways, though, Dracula is, I think, best when less closely adapted for TV. When the focus is, as with the monsters, on the Count's cultural reputation rather than on his literary origins. The 1979 miniseries of Stephen King's Salem's Lot is especially iconic in this regard. King openly acknowledges the novel's debt to Stoker, but at the same time, his version of the vampire is closer to Count Orlock from the 1922 black and white film Nosferatu than it is to later, more attractive interpretations by Lugosi and by Christopher Lee. On the small screen and in colour, the balding, snaggletoothed version of the ancient vampire doesn't quite work. It looks fake and sort of silly. And arguably, it's a much simpler image from Salem's Lot that has captured the popular imagination. When I was a child, friends told me in breathless whispers about the scene where a boy called Danny Glick, who's recently died, floats up to the bedroom window of his friend Mark Petrie and tries to tempt Mark to join the undead. Mark, however, cannily repels Danny with a cross taken from one of his universal monster figurines. So what we get here then is the idea that knowledge of vampire lore, even just from popular culture, can save your life and even your soul. Something very similar happens in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, in the episode Buffy vs. Dracula. I'm Dracula. Get out! Buffy is almost seduced by the Count's combination of Christopher Lee's hypnotic stare and the new romantic aesthetic favoured by Anne Rice's tortured immortals. But she's seen Dracula's movies, so she knows that you can't just kill him once, that he always comes back. And this knowledge allows her to banish him from Sunnydale. For now, anyway. The depiction of Dracula here once again plays on his cultural reputation, and specifically on his seriality, on his tendency towards repetition. Vampires come back from the dead again and again, making them perfect for TV, which also relies on serial narratives that run from week to week. We come now to the final and most terrifying painting of the evening. To even gaze upon it is to go mad. <laughs> They're dogs! And they're playing poker! <laughs> we had a story to go with this painting, but it was far too intense. So we just threw something together with vampires. Enjoy! Other notable appearances of The Count on TV include The Simpsons Halloween special, Treehouse of Horror 4, in which Mr. Burns is suspected of being a vampire, leading the Simpsons family to invade his mansion to stake him. A vampire! <laughs> These, uh, vampires are make-believe, just like elves, gremlins, and Eskimos. But in fact, it turns out that the vampire is Marge and that she's been stirring up fear against Mr. Burns. And here, the show makes use of the idea of the vampire panic, where fear of contagion leads to the persecution of outsider figures. At the same time, though, this is yet another example of the Count showing up in a comedic rather than in a melodramatic text, suggesting that while the Count has always been seductive, he can also be slightly ridiculous, even kind of cuddly. And this is made, I think, particularly evident in the cartoon Count Ducula, where Dracula is not only a duck, but due to a ritual gone wrong, he is also a vegetarian and more interested in fame and fortune than in blood sucking. There will be no blood tasting. You will not need to borrow any coffins. There is no need to do a census of village maidens because there is going to be no family reunion. Not in my castle, there isn't. The appeal of the Count for younger viewers is also attested to by BBC's programme Young Dracula, which clearly attempts to cash in on the popularity of Harry Potter, featuring the titular vampire as a chosen one who still has to go to school. Rather more serious in tone have been recent attempts to integrate him into the quality TV movement, specifically via the 2013 TV series with Jonathan Rhys-Myers in the lead role, and also Penny Dreadful, 
which features Dracula as one of a group of monstrous beings roaming around Victorian London. What these two recent programmes have in common is actually a slight Irish connection. Rhys Myers was born in Cork, while large sections of Penny Dreadful were filmed in Dublin. At the same time, to date, I think, Dracula's TV appearances have been largely British in origin. The American programme Dracula the series from 1990 lasted only one season, and despite the Irish echoes in these more recent adaptations, we're yet to see a fully Irish version of The Count, either on film or on TV. And for me, this is an opportunity that the Irish media should be capitalising on. Sligo Dracula Society is actually doing some fascinating work at the moment on the novel's links to Sligo and the cholera epidemic from 1832, which Stoker's mother experienced firsthand. And considering the way that the book lingers on the use and abuse of Catholic iconography, as well as on violent knee-jerk responses to immigrants, I think that Dracula is ripe for a fully Irish adaptation and could prove very timely indeed. Dr. Dara Downey lectures in English in Trinity College, Dublin and UCD and is also the editor of the Irish Journal of Gothic and Horror Studies. And Dara mentioned Count von Count of Sesame Street. And honestly, I think the Count is one of those rare things. He's a character inspired by another character, both iconic, both similar, but both very much their own thing. And I wanted to talk to the person who created Sesame Street's Count, so I did. My name is Norman Stiles, S-T-I-L-E-S, often confused with S-T-Y-L-E-S. We actually made that error on the Bram Stoker website, and Norman hilariously emailed me to let me know, writing, That's one! One typo! Ah, ah, ah. I was a head writer of Sesame Street for 20-plus years. It was during those years Norman came up with the idea of The Count. I sort of always kind of liked the, the Bela Lugosi Dracula movies, uh, there was something compelling about it for me. I also like Frankenstein stuff. and It's a simple pun, you know, count and counting. So then it came to be, I want to bite your neck, became, I want to count your neck. One, one neck. Ah, <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, greetings, it is I, the count. And it's time to answer that fascinating question. What is the Sesame Street number of the day? Ah, ah. I went to uh, Jerry Nelson, who was the puppeteer who passed away some years ago. He was a wonderful, wonderful guy. And I was a new writer. I said to uh, Jeff, I said, you know, I really think Jerry would be great to play this. Uh, I think he'd do a great job. He said, well, go ask him. So I went to the set and Jerry was there. And I said, Jerry, I have this idea for this character. And would you do it? He said, yeah. And that was it. He did just sort of such a wonderful job. You know, all the puppeteers who brought all that stuff to life, you know, without them, it would just be words on a page. One of my favorite sketches from Sesame Street is when the Count gets a new job as an elevator operator. Ah, oh, well, uh, listen, uh, could you take me up to the seventh floor? Ah, uh, at last. Watch your step, please, going up. Mm -hmm. Starting at one and going up. That's two, two floors. 
three, three floors, four, four floors, five, five floors, six, six floors, seven floors, eight floors. Uh, 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 wait a second, John. I, I wanted to get off on the seventh ten, floor. That's wait, ten floors. I love it. <laughs> kids, little kids don't know anything about vampires, right? So they see this guy, and as far as they're concerned, people who talk like this, people who wear that kind of outfit and have a monocle, like counting. <laughs> Are crazy, maniacally uh, addicted to counting. They, they don't, you know, they're not thinking about vampires. Only people who know vampires get the double joke. The kids just enjoy the, you know, this crazy guy who likes to count. The puppeteers, I think. And maybe the director, John Stone, at the time, added the thunder and lightning at the end, which happens after he finishes counting. This, uh, you know, he says, 10, 10, blah, 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 and there's thunder and lightning and, you know, all that sort of stuff. We did get uh, some complaints. We, uh, there was one complaint we got from somebody who wrote in and said the count was the agent of the devil, which would have meant that I'm the agent, <laughs> that I'm working, you know, because I was sort of the middleman. <laughs> In old Transylvania, when I was a lad, our castle was cold, yet we never were sad. We learned to be happy, we danced round the hall, and learning to count was the key to it all, by counting each count. You know, he's still being written for now, almost all the time when I meet people who are fans of the show, they talk about how they loved that character. As a matter of fact, uh, I was on a plane one time sitting next to this woman and uh, we got into a conversation and I want to say she was a mathematician or a scientist, somebody in the, those fields that I was really never very good at. And she said that she loved the Count as a kid and that all of the people she works with were sort of were the same, or a lot of them were. And one of them had a, a, a Count doll on her desk in the lab. You know, it's that kind of thing, you know, when you do something like this and, you know, years go by and somebody says that it was important in their lives, it really is, you get a kick out of it. <laughs> Norman Stiles speaking there. And just like Dracula, the Count is as popular as ever. In fact, I recommend you look up Sesame Street's brand new parody of the Monster Mash called The Monster Nosh, sung by the Count about Cookie Monster eating everything. YouTube it. You will not regret it. Just as early film and TV creators turned their hand to Dracula adaptations, so too did early video game makers. There are actually a surprising amount of them. So I asked someone who has first-hand experience of playing them to come in and chat. Hello there, I am Vin McCreet. I'm a composer and a massive nerd. And although Vin played all these Dracula video games when he was a kid, he still managed to read the novel first. I have a very strong memory of my dad giving me the Dracula novel, the original novel. And I think I was way too young. <laughs> I was way too young. You must have thought I was like, oh, he can handle this. But I couldn't. Like, it was just like, it was all too much for me. I think I, I'm, I think, oh God, I don't even know what age I was. About seven or something. I'm sorry, dad, for ratting you out here. But I just, I was just, I was not, it was not suitable. 
It was not suitable. I asked Vin to choose three video game adaptations to see how they measure up. And Vin being a composer, we're also going to rate their soundtracks. The thing that's amazing looking back at these games to me and always makes me laugh is that like, you know, if this is supposed to be Dracula's house and yet there's like blades swinging from the ceiling that you have to like dodge past and everything so why does dracula make an assault course out of his house like is he just he just really loves a challenge in the morning like when he's gonna get his breakfast like it's very clear that well with the technology as well of the day the complexity of you know a novel like dracula just, just did not translate into video games properly with any kind of justice do you know what i mean they just could not do it justice having said all that Video game number one, Nosferatu on the Super Nintendo, released in 1995. The whole thing with the music as well, it's like it's very 80s and it's very synthy and it has... It's a lot of attitude, but the vibe is just completely wrong. The vibe of the game is completely wrong. So, uh, like, I don't think that really doesn't have anything to do with the film Nosferatu at all. You're in these kind of, you know, your typical kind of dungeons and fighting skeletons and stuff like that. But, like, two minutes later, you're in the garden kung fu fighting these two gorillas. Like, you know what I mean? So, it's fair to say that it strays significantly from the source material if it was based on that on that movie which i don't think it was yeah not a lot of silent movies getting the video game treatment for some reason maybe it should i don't know video game number two bram stoker's dracula on the sega mega drive So the movie already kind of strayed significantly in certain sections from the book, as is my understanding. And then the game strays even more from that. So you end up in some very strange situations in this game. You're kind of fighting a dragon. I don't even know, like, where... (laughs) I don't know what they were thinking. This game is not the worst, but again, in terms of, like, trying to capture what was going on in the book or even in the film, like, it it just... it just can't, do you know what I mean? Mus- and musically, I have to say, like musically, it's a lot closer than, say, Nosferatu was, even though they're dealing with kind of similar technology. They've kind of approximated the correct kind of instrumentation and the, and the vibe is kind of there, do you know what I mean? It's a bit spookier, it's a bit more kind of... Like the other one, Nosferatu is just like, it's gothic, but more in a kind of a glow stick, kind of cyberdog, Camden Town kind of a, kind of a way. This one's a bit, it's a bit more, obviously because obviously it's got the official license, they can get a bit closer to, like, they had all that kind of the music from the movie and stuff, they had to kind of approximate. So some of the work was kind of done for them, and then occasionally it'll just kind of kick off into kind of all kinds of insanity. And video game number three? Castlevania, Symphony of the Night on PlayStation 1, which is loosely affiliated with Dracula like in Symphony of the Night you're actually playing Dracula's son weirdly enough who's a half vampire half human called Alucard now I don't know how good you are with anagrams but Alucard is actually Dracula backwards which is a little bit maybe egotistical to call your son your name but in in reverse 
Unless you're, well, unless your name is Dad, and then you just call your son Dad. I don't really know. This is a genuinely really, really good game. So, this is the first of the three that I've talked about that are, that is a genuinely good game. It's gone down in history as one of the best games on the PlayStation 1, and it's got a big, big fan base, and... I mean, the Castlevania series itself is huge, but this is, like, it's kind of looked on as, like, the crowning achievement of that series. And uh, the music itself, again, because we're kind of into the CD era, the music is, like, it kind of captures the romance, the kind of gothic mystery, the whole kind of stuff. And also, it has to be said, it goes off into kind of these weird, like, areas. Like, there's there's loads of... (laughs) There is, like... There's loads of techno in it, and there's loads of kind of symphonic metal as well, but it kind of works. I don't know why, like, it just works for some reason. Like, with the design of the characters and everything's kind of extremely kind of over-the-top and gothic and kind of in that kind of rot, kind of sensual kind of way. Just work. Like, it just works. It's nuts. It is nuts, but it works. That was Vin McCreeth, and you can hear some of his compositions on vmcsound.com. Well, that closes the coffin lid on another episode of Fangs, but we'll be rising again on our next episode when we'll actually be speaking to Stoker. Daker Stoker, Bram's great-grandnephew. Fangs was produced and hosted by Liam Garrity. The theme music was composed by Spencer Thune. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review in blood and bite your friends. <laughs> I, I mean, tell your friends. See BramStokerFestival.com. <laughs> <laughs>